Okay. Um, these are the blue buildings in Los Angeles, um, the public headquarters of Scientology. As you see, quite a large building. It used to be the Cedars of Lebanon Hospital. Um, Scientology spent at least two million pounds in the attempt to shut me up. Ten missions were sent from Los Angeles to achieve this aim, and I was offered a stipend for life if I would sign a silence contract. Um, as you can see, I didn't take the money. Nor did I run. But then, good sense has never been my most notable trait. Scientology's creator, Ron Hubbard, said, don't ever submit tamely to an investigation of us. Make it rough, rough on the attackers all the way. This is one aspect of his scriptures that believers have most certainly fulfilled. After 18 months trying to stop me from speaking out against Scientology, the investigation aide in their Office of Special Affairs made a last-ditch attempt. She pretended to be a lowly gopher who was disillusioned with Scientology and spent three hours trying to persuade me that it would be in my best interest to shut up. The next day, she came back for more. By this time, I'd talked to a recent escapee and found out that far from being a gopher, she actually ran the harassment department, a department not found in every religion. She conceded that my book was accurate. She shared some of the details of the dreadful life inflicted upon her since infancy when her parents joined Scientology's supposed monastic order and abandoned her in an overcrowded hovel. She and 80 other kids were watched by a single and usually resentful adult. They were always desperately hungry. She told me how her brother had drowned, aged eight, on a trip to the seaside because of inadequate adult supervision. Social services were tricked at every visit. At 15, she told them that she wanted to leave to study art but was persuaded that the contract that she'd signed when she was six years old was valid and that she had no choice but to stay. I've never seen myself as an opponent of the self-styled Church of Scientology. Rather, I spoke out when I was convinced beyond the vaguest shadow of a doubt that Scientology is based upon multiple deceptions and had never lived up to its many promises. No one had risen from the dead. No one had been cured of cancer or leukemia, as Hubbard promised. No one had overcome asthma, short-sightedness, or become invulnerable to the common cold, as Hubbard also promised. And no one had achieved emotional equanimity, which is all that I wanted when I walked through the door at age 19. Scientology purports to be a psychotherapy, a religion, a training in managerial arts, a sales and marketing system, the only viable educational method on the planet, and an intricate set of procedures that will return human beings to their true state, supernaturally powerful thetans, able to move independently of their bodies with powers of telekinesis and mind-reading abilities. I didn't want that. I just wanted to stop hurting about the girlfriend who'd abandoned me. 
as to supernatural powers, for years now, when I give a talk, I put a scrap of tinfoil onto the table and ask for any Scientologist who has completed the upper levels of Hubbard's teachings to move the foil an inch. It's not happened yet. Nor in 47 years have I ever seen anything that might be described as a superpower demonstrated by a Scientologist, or anyone else for that matter. Yes, I was 19 when I fell backwards in Scientology. I'd been lured to Toulouse, a thousand miles from home, with an offer of work. I was a drummer. There was no work, and six weeks later I fled, having to leave my drum, excuse me, having to leave my drums behind me. During the last week, I'd lived on a loaf of bread a day. At home, I discovered that the young woman I'd been living with for 15 months had disappeared into thin air. It took four days to find her, and it all ended in tears. A few weeks later, she left for New Zealand with the friend she'd taken up with while I was in Toulouse. I'm no longer sure why. We evidently were not made for each other, but I was desolate. Probably just fear of abandonment. Whatever it was, it hurt. I visited a friend. Another of his guests had left a library copy of Ron Hubbard's Science of Survival there. I was alone, with nothing else to read except my host's convoluted Krishna literature. So I read the first half of Hubbard's book. Hubbard claimed to have developed Freud's approach and created a proven psychotherapy. He had rigorously applied the scientific method, or so he said. The wacky ideas that would come to populate Scientology were not in evidence in this book. I later found that this might be because it had been ghostwritten by Cecil B. DeMille's adopted son and blood nephew, who years later wrote congratulating me on my book about Hubbard and his creation. By this time, Richard DeMille was an emeritus professor of psychology at the University of California. Over the course of nine years, I gradually accepted Hubbard's bizarre views through small steps, increments of dissonance, which is the way that most of us accept bizarre views. I'd learned meditation in a Zen monastery, so the idea of reincarnation was not new to me. And why should we believe? that we were the first intelligent life forms in a 14 billion year old universe. So of course we had had lives in other civilizations and on other planets. I was lucky never to have been a live-in member. It took me a long time to realize that my experience was unusual. While a member, I was never abused or humiliated. Scientology made up for that after I left. I rose to the dizzy height of Operating Thetan Level 5, at that time the 25th grade of the available 27. It had taken me seven years to find money to pay for the upper levels, and I was disillusioned from the moment I opened the pack of the first secret level. But it was hard to accept that these were just the Emperor's new clothes, especially when all of my fellow Operating Thetans cheerfully maintained the pretense. I've spoken with hundreds of people who completed these levels. Indeed, every month I broadcast a conversation with one of the eight most highly trained Scientologists in the world. Karen de la Carriere is a class 12 case supervisor. After working with Hubbard and a total of 46 years in Scientology, she now denies the whole system and speaks eloquently of the elaborate confidence trick that Hubbard created. 
So ontology is the world of Oz, and Hubbard was its wizard. Scientology has been accused of enslaving its members both psychologically and physically. Extensive government inquiries in the UK, South Africa, Zimbabwe, or Rhodesia as it was then, Canada and Australia have sternly criticised the group. Court decisions around the world have supported this criticism. For instance, in a ruling in California, Judge Breckenridge said, in addition to violating and abusing its own members' civil rights, the organisation over the years has harassed and abused those persons not within the church whom it perceives as enemies. The organisation clearly is schizophrenic and paranoid, and this bizarre combination seems to be a reflection of its founder, L. Ron Hubbard. The evidence portrays a man who has been virtually a pathological liar when it comes to his history, background and achievements. The writings and documents in evidence additionally reflect his egoism, greed, avarice, lust for power and vindictiveness and aggressiveness against persons perceived by him to be disloyal or hostile. Indeed, anyone who questions Hubbard's authority or his wisdom is seen as both disloyal and hostile. And for many years, I was one of Scientology's main targets and bore the brunt of this aggressiveness. Scientology has been forced by the courts to pay up millions in compensation to those damaged by Scientology's procedures or its harassment. In the US, Lawrence Wallersheim received $9.2 million for the damage done to his health, his family, and his business by Scientology. I worked on that case along with about 150 other cases over the years. The High Court in London appointed me an expert witness in 1987, meaning that my opinion on Scientology is accepted as legally reliable. Canadian lawyer Casey Hill received 1.6 million Canadian dollars in recompense for Scientology's savage campaign of harassment and libel against him. A ruling in that case stated, every aspect of this case demonstrates the very real and persistent malice of Scientology. Despite Scientology's claim to be the most ethical group on the planet, many Scientologists have been involved in serious crimes. Perhaps the most famous is Charles Manson, the leader of the family, a cult that committed a series of horrific murders in Los Angeles. Manson credited his, credited his ability to mesmerize his followers to his 150 hours of Scientology processing. And as you see here, with Dianetics and Scientology, I had more confidence in myself and went the way I chose to go, whereas previously I had always been content to listen and follow, with that that had continued. Scientologist David Gentili is awaiting trial in the US for an alleged fraudulent money-making Ponzi scheme that garnered $1.8 billion. Celebrity Danny Masterson is charged with four rapes. Murderer Kenneth Thompson claimed that Scientology had turned him into a killer. The notorious serial killer David Berkowitz, known as the Son of Sam, was involved with the Scientology splinter group, The Process. At least five other Scientologists are currently awaiting trial or sentencing in the US. Despite claims to have millions of members, I found that the membership has never reached 100,000. At the moment, it stands at around 25,000 worldwide. It is astonishing that such a small group has had such a huge impact and was able to stifle media comment for many years. Indeed, after my book, Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky, was published in 1990, 
It was another 20 years before the next English language book about the group. Then Scientology lost its battle against Time magazine, reputedly costing $20 million in legal fees, and the floodgates opened, leading to Leah Remini and Mike Rinder's award-winning Aftermath series on US TV. At the core of Scientology are the few thousand members of the Sea Organization who have vowed to work for a billion years to create a civilization without war, insanity, or crime. Conditions are more than monastic. Sea Org members often work a 90-hour week for a few dollars. Most are sleep-deprived and fed at a basic level, beans and rice being the usual diet. Members are discouraged from having children, so terminations are commonplace. Once I joined Scientology, I was told that Scientology had traveled in the East on his own in his teens and studied with gurus in India, China, Tibet, and Mongolia. He had then become a nuclear physicist and an explorer. He had made the first mineralogical study of Puerto Rico. He had cured himself of war wounds sustained during World War II using a novel therapy first sold as Dianetics in 1950. Not one of these claims is true. His Eastern studies comprised two teen holidays when he did visit China, but not Tibet, Mongolia, or India. I know, because Scientology put Hubbard's contemporary journals from those holidays into a court case. Two are handwritten. The only mention of anything like a guru is a statement that Monk's voices sounded like bullfrogs at the only temple he visited during his few weeks of holiday. Those invaluable journals came to me through the first of many Scientology cases against former creator of the official Hubbard Biographical Archive, Jerry Armstrong. They were part of a fat parcel of documents about Hubbard's real career. Hubbard did visit Puerto Rico, and this is a picture from that time, but it had nothing to do with the mineralogical survey, which had been partially surveyed uh, by one Bella Hubbard, to whom he was not related. It seems highly likely that Hubbard believed that investigators would see the surname and accept his fraudulent claim. But Ron Hubbard was only nine when his namesake surveyed the Lares district of Puerto Rico. Hubbard was in Puerto Rico, prospecting for gold after fleeing in disgrace from litigation brought by fellow university students. They had signed up for his failed Caribbean motion picture expedition. The purpose of this abortive expedition was to film reenactments of pirate battles on Caribbean islands. The adventure had collapsed before it began and returned to port without a single reenactment because Hubbard had blown the money he'd collected from his fellow students without paying for the hire of the four-masted schooner on which they sailed. Hubbard spent a lifetime separating people from their money and left a trail of unpaid bills. Articles written at the time about the Caribbean motion picture expedition fiasco in 1932 were written by Hubbard himself in the university magazine shortly before he was asked to leave for ignoring his studies. This didn't stop him from claiming to have been awarded a degree in civil engineering. Indeed, throughout my research, Hubbard was my main source of information about his own fraudulent behavior. He's listed as the world's most prolific author in the Guinness Book of World Records, so there is a great deal of information buried in his voluminous outpourings. 
Hubbard's claim to be a nuclear physicist conflicts with his admission in a recorded lecture published by Scientology of the 23rd of September 1950 called Introduction to Dianetics, and you'll excuse me for being pedantically correct, but I've been sued along the way, so I do like to be exact, where Hubbard admits that he failed a course in atomic and molecular physics, which is, by the way, not nuclear physics, before being suspended from his degree course in civil engineering at George Washington University. I found that Hubbard had been a trickster all his life. He'd invented stories even as a teenager. One of the two handwritten teenage journals had been retyped and exaggerated. He continued to make grandiose exaggerations of his real experiences throughout his life. A friend of mine checked the medal ribbon that you see on this photograph. He didn't have those medals, so he'd even borrowed that. The boundary between truth and these fabulisms blurred in Hubbard's own mind. He even acted out these pretended experiences during counselling sessions. Where he claimed to have cured himself of war wounds with a new therapy, the truth is that his state of mind after World War II was far from healthy. In 1947, he wrote to the Veterans Administration saying, this is a request for treatment after trying and failing for two years to regain my equilibrium in civil life, I am utterly unable to approach anything like my own competence. Toward the end of my service, I avoided, out of pride, any mental examinations, hoping that time would balance a mind which I had every reason to suppose was seriously affected. I cannot account for, nor rise above, long periods of moroseness and suicidal inclinations. Would you please help me? Sadly, they didn't. I think I made the first Freedom of Information Act request for Hubbard's files after he died, back in January 1986. Sunday Times journalist and biographer Russell Miller hired me that very month as a researcher. We had the Navy record, the FBI files, and the Veterans Administration files. I already had Hubbard's father's Navy record and the FBI files of Hubbard's partner in sex magic, chemist Jack Parsons. This amounted to thousands of pages. In all my archive would fill about 10 four-drawer filing cabinets. Among the most fascinating of Hubbard's exploits was the Babylon working, which was an attempt to bring about the age of the Antichrist on Earth. Although he would later claim to have been crippled and blinded at the end of World War II, Hubbard managed to leave the military hospital where he had been avoiding active duty and joined Jack Parsons in Pasadena, Los Angeles. Parsons was a notable chemist and is remembered for the invention of solid fuel for rockets, without which the moon landings would not have been possible. Parsons was also an acolyte of Alistair Crowley's sex magic. Crowley believed that through sexual rituals it was possible to entrap divine beings and use them to achieve supernatural powers and curse enemies. Crowley died hopelessly addicted to heroin a couple of years later. He had been dubbed the wickedest man in the world by the media and had made it to Hitler's enemies list. While Parsons masturbated, Hubbard intoned the Babylon working. Soon afterwards, a woman called Marjorie Cameron arrived at Parsons' house and he set about impregnating her to give life to the Scarlet Woman, also known as the Whore of Babylon, named in the last book of the Bible, the Revelation. Perhaps fortunately, she failed to conceive. Hubbard, meanwhile, had run off with Parsons' girlfriend and his money, set up on his next adventure. 
trading in yachts in Florida. An enraged Parsons pursued them and put a curse on them and pursued his money and sued Hubbard. I collected contemporary accounts, including the court documents from Florida, some of which have since disappeared from the file. Correspondence with two splinter groups from Crowley's organisation and a batch of magical books helped me to understand the ceremony. I, tamed, I obtained a transcript of the Babylon working and a batch of letters between Crowley and his followers in the US. Told about the Babylon working, Crowley called the duo, Parsons and Hubbard, louts and spoke of their idiocy. I managed to obtain a then rare copy of Parsons' autobiography, Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword. It took a while, but I managed to understand the ceremony as it related to Crowley's own crazy ideas about creating a moon child. Along the way, I interviewed Crowley's literary executor and biographer, John Simons. His book was called The Great Beast. Russell Miller gave the final material when he interviewed one of Parsons' former lodgers. I even visited the site of Parsons' house, fondly known as the Parsonage by his guests, only to find that 1003 South Orange Grove had long since been torn down. To backtrack, Hubbard saw no active service during World War II. His war wounds, as recounted by him to Look magazine back in 19, 1950, were pink eye, a fall from a ship's ladder, ulcers, and something wrong with my feet. He had been rejected when he first applied to the Navy because his eyesight was poor. Now he wanted a pension for alleged damage to his eyesight from the flash of an artillery piece and treatment for morose moods that often overtook him. Among the witnesses to Hubbard's actual war service was his deputy on the one ship he briefly commanded, a submarine chaser on the west coast of the US. Thomas Moulton testified to the 55-hour battle against what turned out to be a clump of magnetic iron on the sea floor. Hubbard claimed to have sunk two Japanese submarines, but careful Allied investigations of Japanese Imperial Navy submarines show no such losses. This was off the Oregon coast. Moulton also testified to Hubbard's bombardment of Mexican islands as artillery practice. This almost led to an international incident and caused Hubbard to be removed from his only command. Far from curing himself with a psychotherapy at the end of the war, Hubbard had recuperated from the alleged ulcers enough to depart the military hospital where he'd been skulking for the last year. And while there, he'd been dosed with the barbiturate drug phenobarbital. By his own admission, he became addicted and found it hard to quit. He may never have quit. He tried to cash a prescription for the drug 20 years later after the war, signed Dr. L. Ron Hubbard. By chance, I found that this drug, phenobarbital, had been used by two psychiatrists in a revolutionary new treatment that uses abreaction, pretending to relive past traumatic experiences. Grinker and Spiegel's work was just reaching military hospital libraries at the time when Hubbard said he was sneaking into the hospital library dressed in a white coat to look like a doctor so that he could read medical research. The psychiatrists were dealing with airmen who had been shot down. In England, psychiatrist William Sargent was using a similar method, giving traumatised tank crews barbiturates and having them then relive the trauma. Hubbard's version of abreaction therapy went further. Words, during, words heard during times of unconsciousness 
supposedly act as commands from a hidden reactive mind. This is the block to full intelligence, morality and independence, the reactive mind, hypnotic moral that issues commands below the level of consciousness. At 19, it seemed plausible to me. It seems highly possible when compared to the subconscious direction found in the Freudian system. I found lectures given by Freud in the US before World War I that described the exact technique that Hubbard had adopted. The same language was used in the lectures, chains of incidents filled with emotional charge. Freud too used repeated words and phrases after counting backwards from 10 to put the analysand into a reverie, a state of concentration where the subject becomes more suggestible. Freud abandoned the technique because it created a dependence on the therapist. Within a year of introducing his borrowed Dianetic technique, Hubbard labelled it hypnotic and banned it. More than 25 years later, he reintroduced it as book one auditing, with no mention of its trans-inducing nature. Research led me down many tributaries, many meanders. A professor friend who's a prolific author has told me that he longs to write a book about Scientology because it is the most fascinating subject he has ever encountered. And this is a man who has written about some truly zany subjects as a contributor to encyclopedias of religious belief. Hubbard bloated an interesting life into a fabulous set of adventures. A college dropout, long fascinated by magic and hypnosis, he had a ragged career, dogged by failure. He scraped a living, writing penny-a-word fiction, looked into the beginnings of science fiction, having written mostly westerns and pirate stories. His attempt to summon the Antichrist would make a fascinating book in itself, but Hubbard was a pathological liar, narcissistically convinced of his own importance. A few intrepid journalists had delved into Hubbard's life. The first significant investigation was made by one James Phelan, in 1963, he discredited Hubbard's educational claims, including the doctorate awarded to Hubbard by Sequoia University. Sequoia was an unaccredited diploma mill. Its doctorates had no more value than a sweet wrapper. Years after Phelan's article, I found that Scientology had actually bought Sequoia before awarding the fake doctorate to its founder. In 1968, Sunday Times journalist Alexander Mitchell discovered Hubbard's ties to the infamous sex magician Alistair Crowley. Scientology threatened to sue the paper, and rather than pay the costs of a lawsuit, the Sunday Times gave in and printed, Hubbard's, sorry, printed Scientology's statement that Hubbard broke up black magic in America. In 1970, my friend Paulette Cooper's fine book, Scandal of Scientology, was published. To discredit her, Scientology's harassment department invented a bomb threat on former US Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. Hubbard called the harassment he ordered against her Operation Freakout. His intention was for her to be incarcerated in either a jail or a mental hospital. The vicious campaign almost drove the feisty Paulette Cooper to suicide. Thankfully, just before she was indicted, the largest raid in FBI history halted the grand jury investigation into Paulette by revealing the campaign. Tony Ortega's fascinating book, The Unbreakable Miss Lovely, details this scurrilous plot. Forry Ackerman was Ron Hubbard's literary agent from 1938 onward. 
He shared copies of his voluminous correspondence from Hubbard. The first mention of Hubbard's supposed modern science of mental health made no mention of healing, simply that he had discovered a way to rape women without their knowledge and was sure he would make a great deal of money from the system. One of my many informants was Helen O'Brien. She said she headed the Hubbard Association of Scientologists, where Hubbard delivered his doctorate course in the winter of 1952-1953. Usually takes several years of study to obtain a doctorate, but Scientology offered the title by simply listening to a six-week course of Hubbard's rambling lectures. It would be a doctor of Scientology. These included three references to his hero, Alistair Crowley, whose sex magic he still practiced, according to his oldest son and then deputy, L. Ron Hubbard Jr., who was among my interviewees. Um, L. Ron Hubbard Jr. for nine years, sorry, for seven years, was his father's deputy. O'Brien gave me the full manuscript of her fascinating unpublished book about her time running Scientology. She also shared her Hubbard letters with me, including one dated April the 10th, 1953, where Hubbard asked what she thought of the religion angle as a way of making more money. My history of Scientology and its creation, Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky, was published just before the World Wide Web began a new era for the availability of information. These days you can Google Scientology and find most of the important documents that form my sizable collection. I had to gather documents using snail mail, usually waiting weeks for a response. For instance, researching Hubbard's claim that he'd grown up with his maternal grandfather, who owned a quarter of Montana, I exchanged letters with the Montana Historical Society and was kindly provided with copies of documents showing that Lafayette Waterbury had actually owned only 320 acres of the state's nine, 94 million. But Hubbard did admit that mathematics was not his forte, though he elsewhere claimed a degree in the subject. I contacted many former Hubbard associates. Russell Miller used my manuscript as the basis for his excellent biography of Hubbard, the marvelously titled Barefaced Messiah. And as I was his researcher, he shared all of his interviews with me. These included a school friend who laughed at Hubbard's claim to have broken broncos as a child. He said Hubbard was afraid of horses. Miller also interviewed Hubbard's aunt, Margaret Roberts, who lived in the same house with him until he was 12. She knew nothing about his supposed adoption as a blood brother by the indigenous Blackfoot Bakuni people. In different accounts, Hubbard claimed variously that this was at age two, four, or six. During a legal deposition, the head of Scientology's immense legal department angrily showed me a letter that he believed proved this adoption. As I pointed out to him, the author of the letter, a Scientologist and an eighth blood Bakun, called Tree Many Feathers, had admitted that there were no records, but that he had retroactively made Hubbard a blood brother at his own private ceremony. The tribal council of the Bakuni told us that they had never made a blood brother. The notion was borrowed by Hollywood from the Vikings, it seems. Hubbard's 1937 novel, Buckskin Brigades, admitted that he'd learned about the Blackfoot from a young chap in Seattle who happens to be a blood brother of the Blackfeet. Hubbard had a reputation for tall stories long before he founded Scientology, the tallest of them all. 
His fellow pulp author, Frank Gruber, had this to say. During one session, Ron began to relate some of his own adventures. He'd been in the United States Marines for seven years. He'd been an explorer on the upper Amazon for four years. He'd been a white hunter in Africa for three years. After listening for a couple of hours, I said, Ron, you're 84 years old, aren't you? He let out a yelp. What the hell are you talking about? You know I'm only 26. I was actually 23. Gruber had been talk taking notes throughout. Well, you were in the Marines seven years, you were a civil engineer for six years, you spent four years in Brazil, three in Africa, you barnstormed with your own flying circus for six years. I've just added up all the years you did this. And it comes to 84 years. Ron blew his stack. Gruber added, I will say this, his extremely vivid imagination earned him a fortune some years later. And when he died, he left $648 million. The writer Stephen King has paid tribute to Hubbard's imagination, saying that his story Fear is one of the best stories ever published. It's worth adding, however, that most of Hubbard's stories, no matter how imaginative, are poorly constructed and badly written. In 1966, Hubbard created the Guardian's Office to deal with public relations, finances and legal matters. The Guardian's office also set up front groups and unbeknownst to public Scientologists like myself, housed a sizable harassment division. Towards the end of my nine years as a Scientologist, I first had a, heard about the criminal branch one department of the Church of Scientology through the pages of the Guardian newspaper. This was ironic as branch one, covert data collection, was an aspect of Scientology's Guardian office. My withdrawal from Scientology began with the revelation that 11 members, including Hubbard's wife, were on trial in the US for kidnapping, breaking and entering, burglary, and theft of an immense hoard of government documents from US government departments by agents of Scientology's Branch One. On my departure from the organization, I hosted the first public meeting of disaffected Scientologists in the UK. Two smiling members of Scientology's Guardian's office Mike Garside, Mike Garside and Robert Springall stood outside the Crown Hotel in East Grinstead, noting down the names of the 60 attendees. Anyone considered an opponent of Scientology is labelled a suppressive person. Within days, several have been declared, several of the people at the meeting have been declared suppressive by Scientology. This was the beginning of the harassment I suffered. It continues to this day with slander sites on the internet. But for 16 years, it was far more serious than that. I too was quickly declared suppressive. In the mid-60s, Hubbard initiated the fair game doctrine. Anyone labeled a suppressive person is stripped of all rights and can be tricked and lied to or even destroyed without the attacker being punished by Scientology. After criticism, in government inquiries around the world, Hubbard stopped the publication of fair game orders because they create bad public relations. The policy continued in secret, unbeknownst to me throughout my membership. It continues to this day. Although I rejected Scientology within months of leaving, I stayed on good terms with the independent practitioners and helped to defend them from harassment and lawsuits. My late friend Steve Bisbee, an independent Scientologist would sometimes call and ask if I'd been visited by social services, the fire department or the tax people. Scientology tends to run harassment programs in tandem, so on every occasion we'd been targeted by the same authorities. 
However, I didn't drive, so wasn't subject to anything like the invidious attempt on Steve's life. He thankfully noticed that his car tyres had been cut with a sharp blade, so they would have burst if he'd driven the car. The attempt to drive former Hubbard assistant Jerry Armstrong off the road, endangering his life, is a matter of court record. It's impossible to know whether the perpetrators of our harassment were directed by Scientology, as all Scientologists are encouraged to harass critics, whether independently or not. The two break-ins I suffered may have been rogue Scientologists. As nothing was taken, it seems probable that it was meant to scare me. As the father of two small children at the time, it did. In the 1990s, my house was picketed by a small group of Scientologists for several days. The police would come and move them, move them from the thin strip of pavement each day. By this time, I knew exactly where Scientology kept stolen material, including my medical records, which a member had boasted about seeing. I was granted a court order that would allow me to raid this cache. Unfortunately, I told my driver. Fortunately, I found out that he was an agent a few days before the raid. So Scientology would have moved the material if we'd gone ahead. Scientology is well known for its practice of noisy investigation, where friends and associates of a targeted person are visited or called and told that the person is under investigation for crimes and that interesting information has already been collected. The tactic was used against me more than once. Disgraced LA policeman Eugene Ingram was long on the payroll of Scientology. He travelled the world, attempting to collect the information about me, even visiting that ex-girlfriend in Australia and members of my family and friends in the UK. From his trip, a booklet of smears was collected and distributed to thousands of households where I lived. This was supported by a verbal campaign against me where people were told numerous falsehoods. For instance, that I was a heroin addict. I've never taken heroin a child abuser, a charge dismissed by social services, and falsely accused of rape, kidnapping, and attempted murder. I was frequently followed by private detectives, one of whom succeeded in worming his way into my life and stole a copy of the manuscript of my book prior to publication. Scientologists would arrive in pairs on my doorstep late at night and harangue me. One night a man accused me of alienating his girlfriend. I asked her name. I'd never heard of her. Another night, a woman stood on the doorstep chanting, You tell lies! More alarming was the discovery that the man who'd been driving me was a Scientology agent. He'd rented a room across the street and for two years filmed my front door to see who was coming and going. He later stood as a candidate for the British National, Nationalist Party, National Party. It is worth mentioning that Scientology is probably the most litigious organisation the world has ever known. It has filed more lawsuits than any other individual organisation. In 1993, Scientology dropped 3,000 suits in the US in a single day. As Hubbard said, the law can be used very easily to harass. The first suit was brought against my book in New York and created the first of 10 precedents by banning publication, which is a violation of the First Amendment, of course. It was only the second book in US history to be stopped through prior restraint, and it remains that only two have ever been banned. The other was Victor Marchetti's book about the CIA. Thankfully, our lawyer, who'd also represented Marchetti, convinced the publisher to appeal. 
and we overturned all 17 of the negative rulings. As a Scientologist, I was twice asked to write detailed life histories of every embarrassing event in my life. The first was an application to join Scientology staff. The second, when I was asked to found a celebrity centre to recruit celebrities such as Tom Cruise, John Travolta, quite a number of others. As such, these documents, the life histories, were legally protected under employment law. But as Scientology pretends to be a religion, they were also protected by the priest-penitent confidentiality rule. And as Scientology purports to be a counselling system, they were also protected by counsellor-client confidentiality. Despite the ethical rules that protect confidentiality, my letters were shown to members. So I launched a breach of confidence lawsuit. This was a mistake. Because as Lord Justice Wolfe said when reviewing the system at the time of my defeat, it is the case in English law that he with the deepest pockets wins. My pockets were both shallow and empty. Later on, after Scientology filed yet another suit against me, I responded with an action for malicious falsehood. Again, this case failed without evidence ever being heard. I lost a libel case to the former headmistress of Greenfield School, which uses Hubbard's simplistic study technology, also without trial. I was on my own, without funds, facing an organisation with 40,000 members at that time and at least $2 billion in resources. The court cases continued for four years beyond my retirement from Scientology-related matters in 1996. Along the way, three more cases were settled out of court. I was bankrupted by legal costs that had quickly escalated into the tens of thousands. Scientology's lawyer told Amazon that they had to stop selling my book, A Piece of Blue Sky, because of the libel case. And indeed, for three days, the book was suspended. Luckily for me, the Electronic Freedom Foundation launched a campaign. The book became available again and rose to number 98 out of 4 million titles on Amazon. The publisher created another legal precedent for me by failing to pay me royalties and selling the book on to another publisher without my permission. A pirate edition of my book is still available. I rejected Scientology's attempt to buy my silence despite the offer of a lifelong stipend. But in 1996, after suffering bankruptcy through legal costs, I withdrew from the fray. After 16 years away from the Scientology scene, in 2012, I was asked to appear on the BBC's Big Questions. Then in 2013, realising that many former members do not fully recover, I started writing articles for former Village Voice editor Tony Ortega's online underground bunker about the psychological traps built into Scientology. Where transcendental meditation has only two techniques, Scientology has 2,000. Most experts in the counter-cult world shy away from Scientology because it is a mind-boggling and labyrinthine system. Indeed, academics Conway and Siegelman, who studied authoritarian cults for over a decade, have said, Scientology is maybe the most debilitating set of rituals of any cult in America. That, unaided, recovery averages about 12 and a half years more recently, they agreed with me that without help, many Scientologists will never escape Hubbard's elaborate conditioning. Although I continue to use Scientology to demonstrate authoritarian methods and publish interviews about Scientology on my family YouTube channel, my work has long focused on the wider issue of the techniques common to, the, to all authoritarian systems, political, religious, 
psychotherapeutic and commercial. My latest book, Opening Our Minds, shows the similarities between terrorist groups, pedophile rings, human trafficking gangs, pseudo-religious cults, authoritarian nations, such as North Korea, and abusive personal relationships. I believe that by understanding the dynamics of authoritarianism, we can create significant beneficial change. Without that understanding and that change, we are doomed to fight wars and ravage our own environment. That understanding should begin in the schoolroom. So, I would like to thank my dear friend Nick for proposing that I give this talk and David Gibbons for inviting me here and all of you for attending. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much, Mr. Atak, for such a deeply engaging and fascinating account of Scientology, and indeed, your experiences with it. We will now move straight into questions. Is Scientology growing or shrinking? Uh, Scientology is most definitely shrinking. It peaked at perhaps 100,000 members. We've had access to internal documents that show that it's down to about 25,000 and COVID-19 has, has ravaged their staff and, and meant they couldn't rake in the money with their hard-selling techniques you know, through this period. How involved are celebrities in Scientology? I, th I think generally celebrities who are involved in Scientology are profoundly um, involved. Um, Tom Cruise has obviously made a spectacle of himself on several occasions um, claiming to be uh, more effective than a doctor at the site of an injury by using Scientology methods. Um, John Travolta tried to withdraw from Scientology around about 1982 and gave a negative interview to Rolling Stone. It suggested that because he is homosexual, and in Hollywood that's still not thoroughly acceptable, that he was blackmailed back in. He's not progressed in Scientology in any way since then. But you can see interviews with numerous celebrities where they toe the party line and talk about Scientology being their religion and how terrible it is that people like me persecute it, or speak out freely, as the case may be. Do you think Scientology will ever be completely eliminated? Uh, do I think there'll be a day when Scientology will be completely eliminated? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, and, and, and that's certainly not my objective. Um, when Russia banned Scientology, um, I was opposed to that. I, I think freedom of belief is extremely important. But where you cross the line in law and start harassing people, uh, there's recently been a ruling in Belgium regarding the Watchtower Tract Society, the Jehovah's Witnesses, which has said that they cannot order their members to shun uh, Senator Coventry ex-members, um, how easy it will be to police that as a law is another matter altogether. But, but, you know, there are many groups that have beliefs quite as strange as Scientology, one way or another, and I think people should be allowed to, to believe. They should also be allowed to disbelieve. Do you think their views are outdated, or morally wrong, or a mixture of both? I think it is a mix of both, and, and part of the perversity is that it, 
it's a sort of Janus that, that what you're being told is that, that you're you know, making a better society, a happier world. And as a public member of Scientology, you really do believe that, and fervently so in the case of the likes of Tom, Tom Cruise, and probably when I was a member too. But then behind the veil, there's this other organization that, that is um, seeking to destroy anybody who dares speak out against it or even ask questions about it. How much do you think Scientology has lost its way since L. Ron Hubbard died? How much do I think Scientology lost its way after Oren Hubbard died? He died in January 1986, and it had been in decline from about the time when I left in 1983, um, probably had reached its lowest point by the time of his death. It was reinvigorated by a public relations campaign um, which was designed entirely by a man called Jefferson Hawkins. Uh, he's, since leaving Scientology, written a book called Counterfeit Dreams, about how he managed to probably push the membership up towards about 100,000 with massive advertising. What goes on in Scientology churches, such as St. Hill Manor, today? Well, the first thing is that, that there are no, or virtually no, religious ceremonies. So, um, in the nine years I was involved, I went to one wedding. That was it. The chapel at St. Hill, um, and I see that you have some understanding of this subject by your mention of it. The chapel at St. Hill down in East Grinstead, when I was involved, would hold a service every Sunday uh, where the minister, and it takes a week's training to become a Scientology minister, would hold a service to an empty room. And they were seeking tax exemption as a religious organization that had been pointed out in uh, 1968, ruling by Lord Denning, that um, as they had no object of worship, they were not a religion. Then, of course, Buddhism was accorded religious status, so that moved the line there. Since then, they have been acknowledged as a religion. They can perform weddings. But it's nothing like the Christian church. It's not that you actually go and you take courses and train um, as an auditor or counsellor, or you train in their managerial or their selling, their hard selling techniques, which are really quite frightening. I only discovered those towards the end of my membership. Um, or you receive their counselling. You sit on a, um, a, an electrometer, which is uh, with, with two electrodes in your hands, and it has a, a fairly simplistic machine, um, which is not really fully effective, where you will be asked questions and seek to recover past life memories or, for quite some time, admit to your current life failures, which will be carefully written down. In fact, after I left, they started filming these sessions. So the religious practice is, what they would claim as religious practice is that. It's not your baptisms or funerals or, or, or singing songs together. Thankfully, there are no Scientology songs. How does Scientology scam its members? And for how much money? Um, the answer to that question is, uh, and it varies because there'll be a different amount of hours involved for a different person. The, um, Lillian Collins, who is the head of, um, her husband was the head of Collins Publisher, publishers at the time, the largest publisher in the world, now HarperCollins. Uh, she told me that um, she'd spend a million pounds on Scientology and she'd always wondered why it took her so much longer to do each level than anybody else, the levels being paid by the hour. 
we estimate, I think, about half a million dollars <clears throat> to get through to what is, they've, put, they've added one level since I left, so there are 28 levels, so about half a million dollars. The, I think you ask perhaps the most pertinent question, how do they get the money out of you? And this is by extensive training in hard selling methods. Um, so you make threats to people. A friend of mine, uh, a friend of mine now, read my book in 2000, but didn't leave Scientology for another seven years. And when I said to him, well, why didn't you leave? You read the book, there's enough in there. And he said, well, yes, the book was very persuasive, but I didn't want to lose my immortality. So <clears throat> the sales techniques that are based upon um, a, a book written by a man called Les Dane, who was never a Scientologist, and they are horrifying hard sell techniques. So they'll use things like, for example, I didn't know this until the end of my time, and it was one of the things that persuaded me to leave. They will record sales interviews, and there'll be somebody in the next room listening in on a loudspeaker and waiting to tag team to come into the room. They will keep a folder of your weaknesses, anything that, that you feel scared of, anything that you're trying to deal with, and they will push that button, as they call it, to induce phobia. There's also the induction of guilt, making you feel dreadful, and they're sadly not the only group that, that use this method. Um, and they will also use aversion, which is something that I really have emphasised in the countercult field. It's not emphasised enough. If you look at the Nazis, and we were bound to mention them sooner or later, um, then disgust was a main, major aspect of Nazism. The idea that, that Jews carried lice, which would infect other people. And that led to the Zyklon B myth. The Zyklon B, with cyanide in it, was a delousing agent, and the Jews needed to be deloused. De so there'll gradually be a, a building of aversion towards non-Scientologists, who Hubbard called wogs, raw meat, i.e. they're not spiritual, and dead in the head. And this idea that, I mean, when I got involved, I'd come from Soto Zen, where any magical ability is derided. It's called Gedo Zen. It's a silly idea that you'd have supernatural abilities. Yet somehow, I was persuaded that these people could read minds, that they could travel outside their bodies. And you came to believe that ultimately you would do something that would give you this skill. And as I said in the talk, I've not met anybody yet that has these abilities. I'm pretty sure that if they had them, I wouldn't still be breathing, you know. So it, it's a, a complex process of little steps taking you further and further away. Um, I attended a lecture by a forensic psychologist called Brian Tully many years ago. And he, he used to interview white-collar criminals. And he said it was always the same. A person would say, they just asked me to backdate this contract by a day. That's how it started. And when you look at gangs like the Mafia, they'll get you to do something that's not really very significant, and then they'll threaten to tell on you. And it's a system almost like that, that you're being pulled into this thing until you become completely committed. And as Voltaire said, people who believe absurdities will be willing to commit atrocities. Thankfully, I don't think I did. But I certainly believed absurdities. To what extent did Hubbard believe in the Scientology doctrine? Or was it just to make money? I think he believed fervently on Wednesdays and Fridays. Um, a friend of mine 
There's a wonderful little documentary. It's 20 minutes long. It's on YouTube. It was made in 1968. It's called The Shrinking World, Bell Run Hubbard. And the guy who made it, Charlie Nairn, was 25 at the time. And he had to track Hubbard down in the port of Biserti, North Africa, you know, with no internet or anything. He found him. And he arrived at the ship at 1 o'clock in the morning. And he saw Hubbard walking up and down. So he asked if he could come aboard. And for three hours, Hubbard talked to him. And he said to Hubbard, this is a scam, isn't it? And Hubbard said, well, yeah. Nobody else was listening. And he said, that must be awful for you, having to pretend all the time. You know? And Hubbard was, yes, it's a very sad life I lived. And he said to him, well, why do you do it? He said, well, firstly, and this is 1968, it's very nice being able to tell your wife at the end of each day that you've made $10,000, which is, I don't know, half a million or something now. It's a huge amount more. But the main thing is, I like to catch the clever ones and reel them in. So you're listening to somebody who has the mentality of a 10-year-old who's seeking revenge on the world. So I think, and, and he was trying to cure himself of all sorts of ailments, that the list that he gives in his original book, asthma, short-sightedness, bursitis, he had all of those things. And he would, just as with faith healing, for about three days, the adrenaline's good enough that you no longer feel the thing. So he kept thinking he'd cured himself, and then it would fail, and he'd develop another technique. His wife, Mary Sue Hubbard, was overheard several times haranguing him, calling him a charlatan. And um, eventually, he said to her, this was on board the ship in about 1970, he said to her, look, what do I have to do to prove this to you? And she said, well, you have to prove to me this idea of exteriorization of being able to leave your body and view things from the outside. And so this poor woman was then subjected to weeks of procedures that were meant to bring this about. And while you can actually induce what's called depersonalization, which is the feeling of not quite being in your body, perception from outside of the body is, uh, I've never met anybody who could do it. I met people who claimed they could do it, but they couldn't prove it. And she, in the end, just said, no more, can't take any more, and, and gave up. So there were, I think there were days when he understood he was a confidence trickster, and there were days when he really did believe, as he was to write in a, a secret, um, very secret document, that he was Lucifer, that he was the Antichrist, that he, had, that he was the creator of the universe. So he was psychologically severely unhinged, as he wrote in 1947 uh, to the Veterans Administration, and that trapped him. Um, and I think it's also the case, I've, I've studied tens, maybe even hundreds of gurus over the last 40 years, and so many of them have some transcendent experience where they feel everything is revealed to them. In his case, he had um, a tooth removed on a nitrous oxide in February 1938, and he claimed that he died for eight minutes, and that he'd been shown a smorgasbord, that's the word he used, a buffet of supernatural knowledge, and then somebody had he'd heard a voice saying, he's not meant to see this, and he'd returned to his body. And he would tell that story. So I think he was a seriously disturbed individual who suffered from a whole um, complex of psychiatric disorders. Um, he certainly didn't have any supernatural powers, but as I say, he left $648 million, you know, all of it scavenged from his followers. Because of Hubbard's connection to Crowley's teachings, what weird stuff happens on a daily basis? Uh, well, 
Hubbard took the, um, the more acceptable ideas of Alistair Crowley. Uh, I wrote a paper called uh, Possible Origins for Dianetics and Scientology, possibly not my best title, in 1993. And I found 120 ideas that Hubbard used in Scientology that had come from elsewhere, and I then showed that he was aware of the source. About half of those ideas were Crowley. But there's no ritual magic in Scientology. There's no sex magic in Scientology. Um, he took on ideas like um, the trauma of birth and abreacting or reliving your birth, which I would say is pretending to relive your birth personally, I'm afraid. Um, because there won't be any memory of it. Uh, the brain is not capable of laying down memories at birth. Um, but that is an idea from Crowley. Crowley talked about um, past lives rather than the transmogrification of souls or reincarnation, and Hubbard adopted that term. So there are elements of Crowley, and as his son, Aaron Hubbard Jr. said, and I, he was one of my interviewees along the way, um, his father privately practiced ritual magic, but publicly, you know, we were never shown anything that, that could be, be seen as that. How much does Scientology prey on the weak, for instance, like your recruitment after a heartbreak? Um, generally, authoritarian cults pick people up at times of transition, and often those transitions are, you know, heartbreak or upset. But it can also be, you know, the most usual times of recruitment are your first term in university or after your spouse has died when you've retired. And at that time, I mean, in your teens, you're emotionally more receptive. You're more capable of limerence or infatuation, of transcendent emotions. But if you've moved away from home, if you've moved away from the environment you've been in, you've joined a new social set, you've gone to a new job, those are the times when you're most vulnerable and it's more easy to change your habits and routines. Um, for me, um, you know, going to the, the Mosley, the Birmingham mission of Scientology, it was staffed by graduates of Bournemouth Polytechnic, university now, Polytechnic then, who were arts and literature graduates, and they were wonderful. They were really cheerful people. They had no idea that this was a form of coercive psychology. They really thought, as, as I did, that it was something that would liberate people. I would also you know, put forward a caution, say, if you look at um, forms of psychoanalysis, the following that Freud and Jung and Adler developed, for me, those systems are as crazy as Scientology. You know, they, they don't add up. They have no scientific backing. And if you look at, say, Jeffrey Masson's work, who worked in the Freud archive, and then exposed material that was not known. He was viciously attacked by people who were, most analysts would have medical doctorates, but it was not enough to prevent them from having a cultic mentality. Was there one particular realization that caused you to leave the organization? Uh, I left Scientology for various reasons. The first was that I was disillusioned by the upper levels, which seemed to me to be weird. And the basic idea was that you're packed full of little spirits that you have to get rid of. And, you know, that I had difficulty with that. I did it because I'd been involved for seven years and because I trusted Hubbard. But also, 
there was a new regime and um, where members of the staff in Scientology had been brutally treated for years, and I mean really brutally treated. Hubbard was having people thrown overboard from his ship from 25 to 40 feet up into the sea um, with a rope tied around their ankles and blindfolded. So he did horrible things to the staff. But public members such as myself saw nothing of that. Then from 1982, things started to be unpleasant. And one of those things was, was a good friend of mine, a man called Arachalef, who's become famous for his work on courageous followership and intelligent disobedience. Um, he was declared suppressive. And I objected. And I was told I couldn't talk to him anymore. I had to disconnect from him. I refused to do that. Then there was the thought that maybe Hubbard wasn't alive anymore because he wasn't making public appearances of any kind. He was actually hiding from writ service. There were 300 writs that people from court cases, people were trying to... So I came to think that he was gone, that this new regime had taken over. So I left because I believed. I left because I wanted to perpetuate a purer form of Scientology. And within three months, I had documents dumped on me that showed that Hubbard was a liar. And from my perspective, therefore Scientology couldn't be true, and I would have to investigate it all. So I rejected it all and said, you know, I'll look at it piecemeal and see if I accept any of the teachings anymore. And here I am, 38 years later, I don't accept any of it, you know, having examined all of the little parts of it. It's a nonsense. What kind of training did you go through to get to the level you got to in Scientology? Well, what kind of training did I go to to get to the 25th level, which is operating Thetan level 5? There are two routes. One of them is, is your training as um, an auditor or counsellor, and I did six courses, what are called major courses, um, in, in training for that. Um, the other, that, so that's learning how to deliver these procedures, and as, as I said in the talk, there are about 2,000 of them. I learned how to use several hundred of them on people, and thankfully didn't do very much of that, because I'd studied it to understand it, not to, you know, I was actually earned my living as a painter, as an artist. I had a couple of years in art college while I was in Scientology. Um, the other side is where you're receiving that, and so you'll, you'll go through quite a lot of procedures and processes. Um, so I'll give you an example of what's called an objective process. And this is where the auditor will give you directions, which are called commands in Scientology, quite rightly. And you'll have two tables, one on either side of the room. One will have a book on it, the other will have a bottle on it. And the auditor will say, look at that book. And you say, yes. They say, thank you. They then walk you over to it, say, pick the book up, and you pick it up. And they say, what is its weight? What is its colour? And you put it down and then it's look at the bottle. You walk between these two things for however long and you're meant to then exteriorise from your body. I, early on, I, I gave five two-hour sessions of this to somebody. And uh, afterwards I got into trouble for the first time in Scientology because I said to somebody, God, that was the most tedious thing I've ever done in my life. And I think by the end of that, by not by repetition you can um, and by mimicry you can get somebody into a hypnoid state where they just feel dizzy and dull 
And then they'll have the sensation of moving outside of their body, as I say, depersonalization, and the sensation that the world around them is melting. I mean, we've all sat in the schoolroom and had that feeling, you know, what is going on. That's called derealization by psychiatrists. So you get those states and you believe that you've somehow achieved something. Um, but as I say, 2,000 processes, that it's, uh, you know, we could, let's stay and describe 2,000. There are, they basically fall into five or six categories. You know, another would be where you're asking somebody about their um, transmissions, their sins. And typically in Scientology, you ask for an earlier similar incident whatever you're doing, until you find what is held to be the basic incident on that chain of incidents, and you're then meant to have escaped you know, whatever the um, invisible damage is in your reactive mind. How are you approached to become a member? How are you approached to become a member? It, it's very variable. Re recruitment is usually by word of mouth. Um, I recruited about 14 people in Scientology over the years. I'm happy to say they all left. Um, and there is a specific procedure you use called the dissemination drill, where you talk to somebody and you seek to find out what is ruining their life. What is the thing that they cannot overcome? And you then use what's called the fear of worsening. You say to them, and you've tried everything and nothing's worked, has it? And they go, yes. You then give them need of change, which is you'd really like to do something about this, wouldn't you? And you then say, this is how you can change. And you offer them, indeed, always the same course, which is to be called the communication course, no matter what their problem is. It's money problems, problems with their spouse. Um, you avoid health problems. You avoid psychiatric problems, because those can lead you into trouble later on. Are they still recruiting new members, or are they focusing on retaining the ones they have? They're both trying to retain the people they have, and there are many very wealthy people. Um, oil billionaire Willie B. Wilson was a Scientologist, and people are quite happy to hand over millions to them. Um, so they're seeking to retain particularly their celebrity and wealthy followers, but they're always recruiting, always trying to find people. I would say that the, the most effective tool in inhibiting that recruitment was South Park. When South Park did the come out of the closet Tom Cruise episode and resisted the harassment that Scientology gave them for it, that it meant that the younger people who are likely, as I say, the first term of university is, is the point where you're most likely to be recruited, it became ridiculous to be a Scientologist. And I, I think that was, you know, that was tremendously useful. Also now, I mean, when I published the unexpurgated version of my book, we had to take some things out because before the court case in the US it was a strange situation there. But when I came to publish that, I, I asked various friends to write me little puff pieces. And one of them, uh, late Arnie Lehman, who was a critic of Scientology, said, um, before the internet and um, strength in numbers, there was John Atak. So for years, I was one of a very small number of people who was foolish enough to stand up against Scientology. They now have thousands of critics. There are hundreds of sites, you know, YouTube channels. And I think that people now, because we have DuckDuckGo or Google or what have you, that, that people can go and find stuff out. And we'll tend to do that. It is the blessing of the internet alongside the curse of disinformation and misinformation. So um, 
they continue to recruit, but I think the organization is collapsing on itself. That's all we have time for. I hope you will join me in thanking Mr. Atak for such an enjoyable evening. Thank you. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like, as well as subscribe, and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps, and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. We can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much. Good sense has never been my most notable trait.